All right, everybody, welcome back to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and welcome to the podcast. Today's episode uh, comes from the latest post on my Substack. It's called The Antichrist, The Temptation of Jesus, and Christian Nationalism. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the post that's on my Substack uh, to narrate it, and then I'll make some additional comments towards the end if anything stands out to me as I read through. All right. This will be my last post, by the way, on First John. Uh, my friend Corey, she's made an archive page of mine and her posts on First John from fearlessandjoyful.com. If you go there, you can find that archive. So in this article and in this podcast, we'll be talking about an idea that I alluded to several times in my article series on First John, the identity of the Antichrist. Personally, I think this is something we must get right. Not because we'll go to hell if we miss it, but because it has huge implications for how we view Christian history and, more importantly, how we answer some critical issues facing the church today, namely the conversation surrounding Christian nationalism. So let's hop in. Two identifiers of the Antichrist. In 1 John and in 2 John and 3 John, there are two ways to identify who is a true believer and who is an imposter. The first, open confession that Jesus is the Christ. The second, sacrificial love for those who God loves, which is everyone, including one's enemies. 1 John 2, verse 2. The Antichrist, then, is the one who, number one, publicly denies that Jesus is the Christ, and number two, hates the one who Jesus loves, which is anyone. Specifically, John writes, Who is the falsifier, if not the denier, who says, Jesus isn't the Christos? This is from Scott McKnight's translation. And so he uses uh, transliterations for names instead of just like translations. So he's going to say, Jesus instead of Jesus. This is the Antichristos, the denier of the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father. The one who confesses or openly agrees about the Son, has the Father. 1 John 2, 22-23. Notice the argument of the passage above. If one denies the Son, then they don't have the Father. Apparently, these antichristoses were trying to hang on to allegiance to the Father while denying Jesus. But why? Specifically, these were ex-Christians, not simply a Jewish person who had faith in the Father but never had faith in Jesus. First John 2.19 says they have gone out from among us. As to why, well, that's the purpose of this article. Denying that Jesus is the Christ. The first major identifier of the Antichristos, singular, or the Antichristoses, plural, is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. Throughout First John, the expression falsifier is used in connection with this denial. It shows up in the following passages and perhaps more. I'll read them to you here. The first one is 1 John 2, 4. The one who says that I have known him and who doesn't observe his orders is a falsifier and the truth isn't in this person. 1 John 2, 21 to 22. I did not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and every falsehood isn't from the truth. Who is the falsifier, if not the denier who says, Jesus isn't the Christos? This is the Antichristos, the denier of the Father and the Son. 1 John 2, 26 and 27. 
I wrote these things to you about the ones deceiving you. You, the charism, the, the gift that you received from him, remains in you, and you have no need that someone teach you. But as his gift teaches you about all things, and it's true, and it isn't a falsifier, just as it taught you, remain in him. Next up is 1 John 4, 2-3. In this you know God's spirit. Every spirit who confesses, or who openly agrees, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that doesn't openly agree about Jesus isn't from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard, uh, which you have heard comes, and now is already in the cosmos. First John four two to three. Then finally, First John five ten, the one who trusts in God's Son has the witness in oneself. The one who doesn't trust in God has made him a falsifier, because one has not trusted in the witness that God has witnessed about his son. 1 John 5.10. Again, all this comes from uh, Scott McKnight's The Second Testament. My friend Corey and I were doing a study through that, so we used that translation in our articles. But I typically use New American Standard, NIV, or New Revised Standard Version. Hatred or absence of love. The second major sign that someone was of the Antichristos was the presence of hatred or the absence of love which are the same thing in John's mind. He covers the sins of both hateful action and intentional inaction. 1 John 3, 15-18 says, Everyone who hates one's sibling is a human killer. And you know that every human killer doesn't have era life or eternal life remaining in oneself. In this we have known love, that he placed himself for us, and we ought to place ourselves for the siblings, whoever has cosmoses or the world's life and observes one sibling having need and shuts one's empathies from the person, how does God's love remain in the person? Children, don't love in word or tongue, but in work and truth. Now, there's more passages we could show about this, but the ones about love or the absence of love are a bit more obvious than the faults of fire passages. So instead, let's continue to develop both of these ideas, starting with the same of being a falsifier. Why did I put that? I did not do that. Let me just delete that. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote that. It's not even in the article. Um, we'll just leave it there because it's already been there for a week. Okay. Jesus' temptation embodied and his prediction realized. Maybe I did know what I was talking about and I'm just being silly. I should delete this whole thing, but I'm not going to. Let's just keep rolling. To really understand what I see in 1 John, or at least what I think I see, then we need to spend some time examining a few interesting things that happened with Jesus. Since I've written and lectured on these themes in the past, you can find that on my website, I'll speak more in like breadcrumbs here. Jesus' temptation embodied. So, we are all probably familiar with the story of Jesus' temptation found in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. It's also found in Mark, but the accounts in Luke and Matthew will do for now. In Matthew, the order of the temptation is changed. Did you hear, did you hear that? Okay, so Luke, who apparently was attempting to write more chronologically than Matthew, has the temptation of receiving the kingdoms of the inhabited earth by bowing down to Satan as the second excuse me, as the second temptation, while Matthew has it as the last. The order is soot-swapped. I think Matthew changes his order to make a theological point about the nature of the kingdom, since that's a major theme of his gospel account. 
The temptations of Jesus, I think, are not meant to reflect any kind of personal need or egotistical desire of Jesus. Even though Jesus had fasted and would undoubtedly want some bread, I think the first temptation of turning rocks into bread has more to do with Israel's hunger, who Jesus identified with through his baptism, which was a baptism of national repentance. The temptation uh, to throw himself off the temple during the feast to win hundreds of thousands of followers is an in an instant was more about his people than his own ego. And the temptation to bow down before Satan to secure the kingdoms of the world was more of freeing his oppressed people than wearing an earthly crown for himself. But what does it mean to bow down before Satan? That's the question. Is this simply some kind of vain attempt by the devil to get Jesus to worship him instead of God, like a, like a chess match or something? Or is it more than that? Or to word it in a different way, what connection is there between receiving the kingdoms of the world and worshiping Satan? Well, first, let's think about what Jesus saw. We have a mountain near us where you can allegedly see up to seven states at one time. But if you were to travel to a mountain from which you could see multiple countries, you still wouldn't be able to see to the other side of the world, right? Not only is no mountain high enough, but it's physically impossible because of the curvature of the earth. So what does Jesus see from this mountain? I think he sees the land of his people, the land promised to Abraham long ago. The temptation then is to be the kind of king Israel wanted but didn't need, a king that would continue the cycle of violence and win back Israel from the Romans. In other words, to be Yeshua, Joshua, instead of Yeshua, Jesus. With Jesus' refusal of the offer of Satan, he launches out on a campaign, not of violence, but of healing, peacemaking, and preaching about love of enemies, all of which compose the ethics of the new empire or kingdom of God. When we reach the climax of the gospel story, Jesus tells his disciples plainly he's going to die. Peter, shortly after confessing that Jesus is the Christ, rebukes Jesus for suggesting such a thing. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You're a stumbling block to me. Literally, Jesus says, Peter, you're tripping. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Matthew 16, 23. The tempter has returned, but he came back through Peter. Peter, as we know, thought he could prevent the death of Jesus by drawing a sword. Jesus' rebuke of Peter and refusal of his help led to Peter fleeing the garden and then, then denying Jesus three times, which is very similar to the things that we're going to be discussing in 1 John. So let's look at the temptation of Jesus and John. Now, first off, it's interesting to me that John doesn't contain an account of the temptation of Jesus like the Synoptic Gospels, which is a fancy label for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think it does show up. Uh, just with the community or corporate element emphasized. As the Passover approached, a large crowd gathered to listen to Jesus. And as the crowd grew hungry, the disciples wondered how they might find food. Jesus, as you know, miraculously fed this huge crowd. In Mark's account of the same event, which is also found in the sixth chapter of that gospel account, Jesus had the men sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds, which must have looked like a gathering army to any onlookers. This large-scale public miracle is reminiscent of the feeding of the people in the wilderness during the time of Moses. And it also reminds me of both the first and second temptations in Matthew's temptation account. First, the miraculous feeding, and of course the second one, a very public miracle. 
After responding to something that happens next, which I'll come back to in a second, uh, Jesus has to explain that he is offering a different kind of bread. After all, as he told the devil, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See Matthew 4.4. Jesus' words, he says, are spirit and life. He says that in John 6.63. But what made Jesus say all this? Why is he even talking about what kind of bread he's offering? Well, notice how the people reacted to this miraculous feeding in John 6, 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John 6, 14 and 15. Do you see then how the first two temptations in Matthew 4 leads into the third? If you sustain the people through a miraculous feeding, and you demonstrate your calling through public miracles instead of the messianic secret in Mark, which is, go and tell no one, then what comes next is only natural. They want to make you king. In the Exodus, is this not exactly what happened? Moses fed the people and gave them water by the power of God. He performed many public miracles. And what was the goal of all of this? To organize and sustain an army that could conquer the promised land. So was anyone surprised when the people tried to take Jesus and make him a king by force? Yet... As Jesus did with the devil, and as he did with Peter, he refused. Let's look at Jesus before his death. So as Jesus approached the cross, the possibility of a violent revolution came to his mind again. And this was in light of Peter's actions, coupled with the accusations of the priests and elders of the people. Here here are two quotations from the last hours of Jesus' life. One from Matthew, the other from John. The first from Matthew 26, 52-53. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free? He could have called. Okay, and then John eighteen thirty six, Jesus answered, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. The temptation is back. Jesus could easily call the angels. Jesus could easily convince his followers to fight as other contemporary revolutionaries had done. But Jesus refuses. He goes to his death without defending himself. Okay, Jesus' prediction realized. So now that we've done this fun but lengthy work of showing the inner struggle of Jesus, which came from compassion for his people, we turn to the predictions Jesus made in Matthew 24. I'll list them here for you. I'll read them for you so you can have them in your brain as we go through them in a second. This first one focuses on the theme of false messiahs and wars. Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in, my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Matthew 24, 4-8. In this next one, uh, listen to the themes of betrayal and hatred. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Many will fall away. They'll betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, 
The love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, 9-12. Hey, by the way, does anybody love the King James Version's uh, translation of James 1? The uh, the superfluity of naughtiness? I don't know why that came to my mind, but <laughs> thought you'd appreciate that. Okay, the third one. Uh, focus on the idea, we have found the Messiah. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or, oh, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Matthew 24, 33 through 36. Okay, let's focus on this first one, false messiahs and wars. So the false messiahs that would become apparent would lead many astray, but in what way? The next line in this passage is key. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. In the first century, many violent revolutionaries claimed to be some great figure, perhaps even the Messiah, and ended up dying for their cause. Gamaliel recounted some of these to his fellow leaders in Acts 5. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, uh, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up uh, at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Acts 5, 34-37 These different figures attempted to lead rebellions against Rome to recover Jerusalem for Israel but all of them fell. As the Jewish revolt neared, more of these violent ones would try to gain a footing among the people, but their end was destruction as well. Jesus' followers were to take up their cross and follow Jesus by not getting caught up in the physical conflict and instead focusing on preaching the way of peace through the gospel. Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, let's focus on this passage about uh, betrayal and hatred. As John wrote, the Christians weren't to be stunned if the cosmos or if the world hated them. See 1 John 3.13. And some of the Christian community would apparently fall away, betray each other, and hate each other. Themes John also covers. He calls this exiting into the cosmos in 2 John 7. These false prophets would lead many astray into a path of lawlessness. Uh, into the path of the superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, which is just... A great phrase. As we will notice in John, and as we saw in the earlier editions of this uh, written series, if you go look at the substack, you can see them for free. All the articles are free. They're only paid if you read them early. Uh, this lawlessness was not general rule-breaking, but was characterized, again, by the denial that Jesus is the Christ and a hatred of others. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul tells the Thessalonians to not be deceived because there was a coming revolt when the man of lawlessness would be revealed which would make a great wrestling name, by the way, the man of lawlessness. Uh, this revolt, by the way, I think refers to the very violent revolution of which Jesus predicted. Okay, we have found the Messiah, that passage. Finding the Messiah means rejecting the true Messiah. As they invited each other into their homes or out into the wilderness to conspire against Rome, uh, if you've watched The Life of Brian, you know what that looks like. The Christians should be wise enough to not get caught up into this kind of fervor. This would lead to their sure death despite the grandiose claims of these false or anti-Christs. In Luke 19, Jesus warned. He came near the city. He wept over it, saying, If you, 
Even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Luke nineteen forty-one to 44. Here's the thing. John saw these things happening in his congregations. As John ministered to his congregations, he saw these events play out in real time. Lawlessness was increasing. People were abandoning and betraying the Christian community. False Christ and false prophets were deceiving many. Notice the following text here. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. Okay, next, let's take a look at this phrase from 1 John. uh, Human killers and children of the accuser, which is a great title. To bring this series to an end, let's focus on one last passage from 1 John 3. I'll quote it here. It's a lengthy one, so stick with me and pay attention to the language. The one who does sin is of the accuser, because the accuser, by the way, which is another name for for Satan, sins from the beginning. For this God's Son became apparent to loosen the accuser's works. Everyone who's been given life from God doesn't do sin because his seed remains in him and is unable to sin because the person has been given life from God. In this, God's children and the accuser's children are apparent. Everyone who doesn't do rightness isn't from God, and the one who doesn't love one's sibling. Hey, if you want to know more about that sin that they don't do, <laughs> then go look at the article from First John that's called uh, The Sin Unto Death or, or something like that, and you'll see my thoughts on that passage. Okay, because this is the announcement that you heard from the beginning, that we love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slayed his brother, For what reason did he slay him? Because his works were evil, but his brother's works are right. Don't be stunned, siblings, if the cosmos hates you. We know that we have shifted from death into life because we love the siblings. The one who doesn't remains in death. Everyone who hates one's siblings is a human killer. And you know that every human killer doesn't have air life remaining in oneself. 1 John 3, 8-15 in Scott McKnight's Second Testament. Okay, this is a lengthy text, lengthy text, but I think it's worth quoting. In the first section, a comparison is made between the accuser's children and God's children. The difference between the two groups is that one sins, the sin that is toward death, and the other doesn't sin, the sin that is toward death. In short, the difference lies in one group living a life of love, while the other group's hatred is made manifest in lawlessness and denial of Christ, as in Matthew 24. This lawlessness, again, is not general naughtiness, but specifically getting involved into the Jewish revolt against Rome. The accuser sinned from the beginning, which, if we let John explain this himself, consisted of two things, lying and murder, which are the two major indicators of the Antichristos in John. In John 8, John records Jesus' words, You are of the Father, uh, you are of the Father accuser, and you want to do your Father's desires. That one was a human killer from the beginning and was not standing in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks falsehoods, he speaks from himself because he is a false speaker and its father. John 8, 44. 
In the second section of this lengthy passage from 1 John 3, those who love and have faith in Christ remain in life, while those who don't abide in death. It's these two qualities that distinguish between those who have air life and those who don't. Even though others might claim to be sons of liberty, they are in actuality wells without water. 2 Peter 2, 16. Like Peter's temporary setback in Matthew 26, upon hearing of the mighty works of Jesus, these joined themselves to the followers of the way. But when they realized the nonviolent nature of the kingdom, they publicly denied Jesus and turned to a life of hatred. They became human killers and children of the accuser. Conclusion and Application While John was addressing a specific circumstance in his time, his words were preserved to warn us of this path of violence. Christians throughout the years, from Constantine to Columbus, have used the gospel of Jesus and the institution of the church to commit violent acts and establish Christianity as the state religion. Instead of being peacemakers, they became servants of destruction. Instead of laying down their lives, they became human killers. And while I'm not the judge of their souls, I do think they serve as important warnings for us today. As Brian Zahn recently tweeted, the separation of church and state may not be necessary for a healthy state, but it is absolutely necessary for a healthy church. Establishing Christianity through violent means is never justified, even if the end seems to justify the means. The way of the cross requires us to lay down our lives. Even though Jesus could have theoretically done untold good in establishing his own empire in the usual way, he chose the path of nonviolence for a reason. And even if we don't understand the ins and outs of that reason, especially in times of distress, he chose that path, and we should too, if we are to be his followers. That's the end of the article. I got one more thought on that towards the end there. Sometimes people say, well, isn't our moral obligation to you know, take up the sword and defend whatever cause or whatever the idea might be? It's hard to explain why that's not the way. In fact, I might not be able to explain why that's not the way. But didn't Jesus have that opportunity? <laughs> Couldn't have Jesus called those angels, right? And and overthrew Rome and released everybody from captivity and forgave all the debts and established a peaceful society. I mean, if anybody could do that, wouldn't it be Jesus? And yet he did not choose to go down that path. Was he shirking his responsibility? Was he not being responsible with his power? Uh, was he willing? Was he being a willful participant in the oppression of untold numbers of people? I mean, think about all the evil that Rome did and subsequent nations have done in the world. If Jesus didn't take up the arms to, to violently overthrow Rome and to establish an empire of peace, if he chose this nonviolent way of death and resurrection, then shouldn't that be the path that we choose to, regardless of how counterintuitive or strange it might be? That's what I think. But you can make your own decision, and I'm not going to judge you for that. We all have to uh, do what we think is the best, and I'm going to do what I think is the best, and that is follow the path of nonviolence the best that I can. Thank you all so much for uh, listening to this. If you'd like to become a member of the Substack group, just go to danielcrogers.substack.com. You can subscribe for free and receive all of the weekly articles for free. They come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 5 a.m. Tuesdays is Textual Tuesday. We'll look at a specific passage, kind of like we did in this podcast. Thursdays is, is Topical Thursday, where we'll look more at a general topic. And then I'm thinking about starting something on Friday, because some of you uh, decided to pay for a Substack, <laughs> despite me telling you not to, or despite me saying you didn't have to, I should say. 
And I'm going to give you a reward for that uh, for those of you who did the founder subscription on Fridays as promised in the note on the founder, uh, whatever that is, tier. But anyways, thank you all for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast if you have found this enjoyable. If you'd like to share this with someone, that'd be great too. Have a great day and God bless.